Before we begin, a warning. Today's episode deals with a case of sexual assault and murder. We've been following the war in Ukraine all week, and we'll have more on that for you on Monday. But today, we wanted to stop and mark something that happened a year ago, but which had an enormous impact on women across the country. Last March, Sarah Everard was walking home from a friend's house in South London when she was kidnapped and murdered. A serving police constable has tonight been charged with the kidnap and murder of Sarah Everard. I speak on behalf of all my colleagues when I say that we are utterly appalled. Her death sparked an outpouring of grief and anger across the country. Women didn't feel safe and they didn't trust the police. It's really upsetting. It's really brought up a lot of emotions for everyone. It's touched all of us living here. It genuinely could have been anyone. You can see the anger. Like, you can see, like, now people are coming out on the streets and they have enough. Yesterday, Sarah's family released a statement remembering their beloved daughter and sister. It is a year since Sarah died and we remember her today, as every day, with all our love. Our lives have changed forever and we live with the sadness of our loss. Sarah was wonderful and we miss her all the time. Sadly, Sarah is not the only woman to have lost her life recently in violent circumstances and we would like to extend our deepest sympathy to other families who are also grieving. We were promised it was a watershed moment, but a year later, has anything changed? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the murder of Sarah Everard, one year on. Cousins listened in court with his head bowed, not far from the parents of Sarah Everard. They heard how a couple drove past the pair as the fake arrest took place. Their initial impression was that an undercover officer was arresting a woman who they assumed had done something wrong. The main hearing where we found out the most information of the case was a sentencing hearing held in late September. That's Fiona Hamilton, crime and security editor at The Times. Last autumn, day after day, she followed the Wayne Cousins trial as it unfolded. The palpable shock of the public really came through just because of the sheer horror of what that poor woman experienced and the grisliness of what he did and the huge abuse of power. So we found out that... He planned to abduct a lone woman from the streets. He hired a rental car for the purpose. He used his warrant card to flash at her to make her feel secure that a police officer was talking to her. He arrested her under the guise of a breach of coronavirus rules, used his police issue handcuffs to make sure that she couldn't get free when he put her in the back of his car. He uh, drove her to Kent. She was raped and abused 
And then she was strangled and her body was disposed of near a woodland plot that Cousins owned and attended with his wife and kids a couple of days later. And he uh, tried to burn her body as well. I mean, Fiona, the details were horrifying. What was it like in the courtroom as all of this was coming out? Well, it was an incredibly emotional court case, I suppose, just to hear the horrific details step by step of what Cousins had done. It was incredibly difficult to listen to. And of course, Sarah's family were in the courtroom and then we had uh, that extraordinary moment where they were given the opportunity to speak to the court about their experience, about Sarah, who was a daughter, a sister and a friend. And her parents and her sister spoke directly to cousins, actually, outlining their grief and what he had taken from them and their dignity in being able to do that. And the poise they showed was just tremendous. And I'll never forget it and I'll never know quite how they managed to do it, really. And he actually sat there with his head bowed and he couldn't even look at them. And he clearly felt sorry for himself, I think. Her father, Jeremy, asked him to to look him in the eye when he was speaking to him and he addressed him politely. And Cousins looked up for a mini second and then sort of looked back down. And the reason that I think he felt sorry for himself and was doing things for his own ends was because in his mitigation, we heard all about how sorry he was. And I think his barrister said something like, the burden obviously is on her family, but it's a burden that Cousins will have to live with for the rest of his life. And I've always been quite cynical about that because Cousins has never given a full account to the police of exactly what happened to Sarah and exactly what he did. So if he truly felt that remorse, I think that he would have done that and he hasn't. And Fiona, he's been sentenced to, he's been given a whole life sentence for the rape, kidnap and murder of Sarah Everard. But in a way, it hasn't completely drawn a line under you know this awful story. There are still other investigations going on into the wider climate that allowed him to do the things he did. Tell us a bit about the investigations we're still waiting to hear back from. So there's some ongoing investigations into Cousins specifically. There was a, it must be said, brilliant police investigation following the abduction of Everard in which he was tracked down and captured and a painstaking investigation into his movements before that evening in preparation and then after the fact to the extent that the evidence that they gathered was so good that he just didn't have anywhere to go and he had to admit the offence. There's also investigation by the independent watchdog, the Independent Office for Police Conduct. And the focus of that is on why Cousins wasn't apprehended earlier before his offences escalated because he was reported twice to police for flashing on one occasion only 72 hours before the abduction where he flashed staff in the drive through of a Swanley McDonald's. That's a, a McDonald's in Kent. And that is astonishing. Yeah, it's chilling, really. And the watchdog is investigating what exactly went on there and whether his behaviour could have been interrupted. And that involves a probationer officer 
who did attend the Swanley McDonald's was given certainly Cousin's car registration because it was captured on the camera footage at the restaurant but didn't make the connection to him before he went on to abduct Everard. And I think that case is probably a good indication of the many wider issues that spring from the Sarah Everard case, which is the investigation of sexual harassment and how the police service is handling the very serious issue of violence against women and girls. And there is a lot of work going on in that space because I don't think you'd find many people who would disagree that they have fallen far short of what the public would expect. And Fiona, that that has been an ongoing element of the last year. You know, we have had a lot more scrutiny on how the Met has behaved in various cases, and particularly this one. Just take us back, because I think, you know, the first moment of real shock for a lot of people when the Sarah Everard case happened was with some of the Met's public announcements afterwards, some of its advice to women on what they should do. Just remind us on what they were saying. Yes, so because of the manner in which Cousins had abducted Sarah Everard and his complete abuse of his position as a police officer and also the equipment that he was issued as a police officer, there was really understandable public concern. And And one of the first things the Met were asked by journalists in the immediate aftermath of the sentencing, well, how on earth do you expect women on their own on the street to engage with police officers? What are you going to tell them to increase their confidence? And there was a press conference with Assistant Commissioner Nick Effgrave. It was the same day that Cousins had been sentenced at the Old Bailey. And They outlined some initiatives that they were doing, but really the coverage was overtaken by his remark that women should do whatever they can if they're confronted by a police officer who they're concerned about, including flagging down a bus. I remember as as a woman living in London, there was just like a collective gasp when that advice was published. You know, the idea that you could flag down a bus and ask a bus driver for help when you've got a policeman in front of you just seem completely mad. I mean, it's hard to flag down a bus at the best of times, but, I mean, the advice just seems so out of touch. It was completely out of touch, and I don't know whether they were caught a bit by surprise. It was a comment that was made off the cuff, but it just really illustrated to me that the Metropolitan Police had got a very long way to go in how they tackle these issues. Have there been any concrete changes in the way that the police are effectively policing women? Are there more bobbies on the beat? Are there more police around on the streets to help if anything happens? Or do they have any changes in the way that they approach women when it's dark and things are happening after Sarah Everard? Yes, so the Met has put in quite a lot of changes in this space. There's now the opportunity that if you're stopped by a police officer, who you don't trust or you have any concerns about, you can actually call the control room and they will verify that officer for you and that they're on duty. That was a much better step that they took rather than the initial, well, wave down a bus suggestion. They've published and stated a series of aims about improving how they tackle violence against women and girls. They want to increase the number of perpetrators brought to justice for violence, improve the victim process, increase women's confidence in the police 
and really intensify their work to tackle internal sexual misconduct and domestic violence by officers. And there are a range of strategies to try and achieve this. There's some very basic stuff, community engagement, where female police officers are going out for walk and talks where members of the public, female members of the public, can join and walk along with them in a local area and explain to them why they might feel safe, what their vulnerabilities are. And so they get it from the horse's mouth um, about the types of initiatives they might be able to do to improve safety in that area. They've increased their violent hotspot policing, so they're targeting patrols in high-risk areas, and they're doing a pilot where undercover officers are actually deployed alongside uniformed officers to areas such as nightclub hotspots. They're not going into the nightclubs, but they're on the streets outside. And if an undercover officer notices somebody who looks like they could be a predator, a male who's hanging around, doesn't really seem to have a good purpose, might be going up to lone women they can actually alert their uniformed officer colleagues who will intercept and have a conversation. And that's something that was started in Thames Valley Police and had a real impact on the number of offences against women in the nighttime economy. And so the Met are trialling that in South London at the moment. They've implemented predatory offender units where they use intelligence to tackle high harm offenders. They're building problem profiles of women violence issues in specific borough areas. They're improving domestic violence training, trying to increase the use of bail in domestic violence cases and protection orders, which are civil orders that can help victims while a case progresses to court. So that's a lot of the external work that they're doing in this effort to drive up convictions for these types of crimes. We can't really talk about trust in the police since Sarah Everard without talking about some of the cultural problems that we've just become so much more aware of over the last year. Yes, that's right. Well, there's been so many cases, you could do a separate podcast, but I mean, the one that probably was seen as the straw that broke the camel's back was Operation Hotton. Another grim day for the Met. In trouble this time, officers at one of its most famous police stations and the offensive text they sent to colleagues. A recent report by the Independent Office for Police Conduct detailed what officers at Charing Cross Police Station have been up to. One male officer to another, I'm going to smack her. To one female officer, I would happily rape you. I mean, ultimately, that was the catalyst for Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, ousting Dane Cressida Dick, withdrawing his confidence. The scale of the change, I believe, is urgently required to rebuild the trust and confidence of Londoners in the Met and to root out the racism, sexism, homophobia, bullying, discrimination and misogyny that still exists. I am not satisfied with the commissioner's response. She resigned as commissioner a couple of weeks ago. The IOPC had originally instigated an inquiry because there was an allegation that an officer had brought a drunk woman back to the station to have sex with, but it morphed into this massive investigation into general culture and standards. There was a culture of misogyny, racism, there were gay slurs just being used casually on a WhatsApp group. 
A male officer told a female colleague that he wanted to rape her. There were jokes about black children being killed. I mean, really disgusting stuff that was just being casually exchanged. And officers who were concerned about it were bullied and harassed and threatened with being snitches. So what the IOPC said about that afterwards was that this was not a case of a few rotten apples, that there were significant ethics and culture problems across not just the Metropolitan Police, but policing across the country, and that it's time to stand up and really do something about it. Fiona, you've done some astonishing journalism around this, exposing some of those attitudes and some of those really toxic WhatsApp exchanges between policemen. I mean, tell us a bit about what you found. And in in particular, tell us a bit about some of the female policewomen you've been speaking to. Well, When you start to talk to female officers about the cultural issues that they've experienced, they talk about, and this is not something that we're talking about the majority of police officers in the Metropolitan Police, but that there are definitely pockets where misogyny is ingrained, women have been talked down to, women have been laughed at, and just the inappropriate behaviour that is not really recognisable in other professional workplaces and that this is something that has been become almost acceptable in some police stations. And I would say it's definitely not the Met alone. There was a very high-profile case of a police station in Hastings where there was just sexism and misogyny running rife. Female officers were being snapped on the bottom with rulers by their male counterparts. One of the male officers printed out pornographic images of a naked model and stuck his female colleague's photograph on top, so replacing the head with the female photograph. Sexist language. And it was just allowed to just continue until ultimately there was an independent investigation and those officers were censured. But this is something that unfortunately seems to be running deep. And I did an interview recently with Sue Fish, who was Hmm. the chief constable of Nottinghamshire who talked about when she joined the force 30 years ago, and she was in a different force at that time, but when she joined the police service 30 years ago, just an inherent sexism about the way women were expected to work and they wore white shirts and they'd be sent out if it was raining because the shirts would become see-through and some of their male colleagues (sighs) might oogle their breasts. This type of behaviour. But what she was really interesting about was she said... In some ways, she fears it's gotten worse because what we saw at Charing Cross, there were casual jokes at Charing Cross about domestic violence and rape, and there was an underlying violent element to that misogyny that she felt did not exist previously, and that's a real concern. Coming up, how do you change the culture within the police? But first... Hi, I'm Emily Dugan, Social Affairs Correspondent at The Sunday Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to investigate. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Fiona, 
I'm so interested in these conversations that you've been having with women inside the police, you know, who've been there for years and who've watched the culture evolve, especially, as you say, you know, they've watched it getting worse. You know, when you spoke to people like Sue Fish, the former chief constable of Nottinghamshire, did she say if she'd tried to change it while she was there? Well, Sue Fish herself... um had unfortunately been the victim of a couple of occasions where she was touched inappropriately, once as a more junior officer and she didn't report it. She also went on to become the first police force where misogyny was recorded as a hate crime, which was something she was really passionate about in believing that if you told women to come forward about acts of misogyny and abuse like that, that you would be able to build up an intelligence database and actually just encourage them that they'd be listened to and in some cases do something about the behaviour. So if there's Mm. poor behaviour going on on a specific bus line all the time, you can deploy some uniformed officers to talk to the people who are responsible. And she said she got a lot of resistance at um, a national level by other chiefs that people would sort of say, what are you doing that for? We've got bigger fish to fry. And she was one of the chiefs who also, she said, started to focus on internal misconduct, so sexual misconduct by officers. And Sue said that when she started to really focus on this and try and get out those rogue officers, she was told by some senior police, what are you doing that for? Why are you looking under that rock? That's shocking. It is. I mean, it's it's horrifying that even when you try to do something about something which is so patently wrong, nobody wants you to. It is. And I mean, that's her experience. And I've spoken to female chief constables elsewhere who say that they haven't been victims of sexism. And actually, they believe that there is a heck of a lot of work going on within police forces to really root out those rogue officers and improve standards and improve that culture. And that some of them don't recognise the accounts of misogyny that other officers have been publicly giving. So there's certainly a little bit of debate about that. But what I think is clear is that when the Independent Office for Police Conduct goes into police forces, and in the last couple of years, on a number of occasions, they have been able to follow the phone evidence, look at what is on WhatsApp groups, look at what officers are saying to each other. And frankly, it's extremely disturbing. I think for a lot of people listening, you know, Sue Fisher's experience shows A, how old the problem is, this isn't new, how ingrained the culture is, the idea that it's getting worse, and also how hard it is to change it from within if there's so much resistance. So you know, what initiatives have been put in place and how, how do you change the culture of the police? It's an incredibly difficult question. I think, first of all, that you have to have a lot of support within the police force to change that culture. And I suspect that at the Metropolitan Police, given the recent level of controversy and the huge amount of public concern, the majority of really good officers want to change the record. They want to get this sorted out. Hopefully they will feel more emboldened to report colleagues who are not behaving appropriately. They're making the whistleblowing process more enticing, hopefully, and more supportive. Because what a lot of officers have said historically is that if you go through that whistleblowing process, you yourself end up getting isolated and ostracised. So they're Mm. trying to do things to improve that. In the Met specifically, there's two major reviews 
One was ordered by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, into culture and standards. So that's going to look at, first of all, why Wayne Cousins wasn't stopped before he targeted Sarah Everard, but then a much wider look at issues of ethics within the police force and the specific issues of misogyny and racism and generic culture. And there's a similar review that was ordered by Cressida Dick that is being carried out by Baroness Casey, who is also similarly looking into standards and she's been told she can go wherever she wants, speak to whoever she wants and do whatever she wants. And and they're relying very heavily on the recommendations that she comes up to to try and improve behaviour. In the meantime, Cressida Dick has increased the number of anti-corruption officers who can investigate Mm. their colleagues, but the sort of line of duty style unit. And they will be very much focusing on sexual misconduct and domestic violence allegations and those sorts of issues are corruption issues as well. And every member of staff and police officer at the Met has been written to in a letter from Cressida Dick in which she said, enough is enough. If you don't meet these standards, we don't want you and get out before we kick you out. So there's been a real hardening of attitudes about these sorts of issues. And I suppose what it already comes down to is, has it made a difference? You know, a year on, has anything actually changed? Well, in that year, unfortunately, we've had the results of the Charing Cross investigation. Of course, we had another high-profile case in which two police constables were jailed because they took photos of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, who were two sisters who had been brutally murdered in Wembley. And those officers had been sent to guard the crime scene overnight and instead they breached the cordon, terribly disrespected their memory and took photographs which they shared to colleagues. And so I think the public confidence had already taken a pretty bad hit in March last year when Sarah Everard was murdered, has taken a real battering in the months since. And it's going to take a long time to get that confidence back. I know there are police chiefs out there who are genuinely concerned that the way that they police by consent in this country, which is this principle by which for the best part of 200 years, police have operated in this country. And it's an idea that your legitimacy is based on having the public confidence, having them understand your motives and having them believe in you, rather than imposing your policing tactics and imposing the order of society through harsher methods such as force. They're really concerned that that has had such a dent in it because that public trust is really ebbing. So I would say that I think things are worse potentially, but if they can really achieve something in improving particularly the conviction rates for rape, but the wider issues of violence against women and girls, and they can explain to the public more and more, and there's a big issue of communication here and the Metropolitan Police has not done a very good job on that, try and take the public with them, explain what they're doing, explain how they're getting rid of these rogue officers, tell us more about what they're doing to improve culture and standards, then I think they can resurrect this situation and things will get better. And the public probably do have to be aware that over the next couple of years, you are going to see more and more police officers being hauled in front of misconduct panels for, in some cases, pretty disgraceful offending, I suspect, and in front of criminal courts. But 
that is hopefully going to be a sign that they're doing more to get these people out of forces. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Fiona Hamilton, the crime and security editor at The Times. You can find all of Fiona's reporting on the police at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any thoughts on the podcast at all, please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more on what's happening in Ukraine. Until then, have a good weekend. <laughs>